Hi everyone, you're listening to The Action Is, an EWB podcast featuring socio-technical professionals who are changing the engineering profession and the world so that all people and living things can thrive. EWB Australia acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander elders past, present and emerging and know that this land was never ceded. We respect their stories, their wisdom and knowledge systems and their ongoing deep connection to land, water and community. So we're delighted to have Ruby Heard on the podcast today. Ruby Heard is one of our Aboriginal advisors for our Reconciliation Action Plan. She's a versatile and ambitious entrepreneur and electrical engineer with global experience and a penchant for sustainability. Ruby worked in building service design for a large firm in Melbourne before relocating to San Francisco to pursue an energy focus role. She spent six months of 2018 volunteering in refugee camps in Ethiopia and returned to Melbourne in December to launch Alinga Energy Consulting. And she applies her skills to help more vulnerable communities with affordable energy access. Welcome, Ruby. Thanks, Mel. Nice to be here. Yeah, it's so great to have have your podcast and to be able to chat. I was hoping that we could just start at the start and hear a little bit about your journey and how you came to be in Ethiopia and what is it about energy equity that you know is so that you're so passionate about? How did you end up sort of where you are today? Yeah, all right. So I, I suppose my story into engineering kind of starts in high school when I realized that really my passion was the environment and I, I didn't know where to take that, but I knew I really cared about it. I was a totally avid recycler and it was kind of all you can do as a, as a teenager, right? You can just recycle your friend's beer bottles <laughs> at parties. So I focused on that and, and I kind of thought about maybe my career I might end up in, in recycling somehow. And when I thought about that a little bit more, I thought, geez, recycling plants must use a lot of power. And I thought about where our power comes from, it's fossil fuels. And at that moment, I realized, well, it's, it's got to be all about power, actually. Anything I do is, is going to pretty much require electricity. And so I'd, I'd like to see that be renewable energy. So that was, you know, back I don't know, 2007, probably, when I started thinking along those lines. And so decided to go into electrical engineering rather than taking an environmental engineering path. And uh, I ended up after university straight into a, a great company, Arup. And I was there in the Melbourne office for a few years and realized I was not getting to work on any renewable energy projects. So their website was full of wind turbines, uh, but I was not getting to work on any of those. Just because they, we didn't really have much of that going on in Australia. And I, I guess Arup wasn't properly positioned to get that kind of work either. And so I, yeah, I wasn't really working on that. I was working on buildings and yeah, big buildings, train stations, airports. So it wasn't really aligned with my passion. So after doing that for about four years, I asked to be sent somewhere where I could work in renewable energy. And a few months after I asked, I was sent to California. And so I worked in San Francisco. And I worked with predominantly, and my client was Google. So I got the opportunity to work on really big, complex solar for like crazy geometry buildings, basically. Uh, so that was 
very exciting. But at the end of kind of two years there, two and a half years, I realized it, it still wasn't quite fulfilling me. So there's something missing. I was doing the renewable energy aspect, but there wasn't, or what I figured was there wasn't a personal component there. I was working with these big corporations and I wasn't doing any you know, face-to-face stuff. I wasn't helping anybody directly. It just didn't feel like it was a, a fulfilling thing at the end of the day. So I had done a little bit of work on a pro bono project, working with working with a, a charity which helps people who are homeless or at risk of becoming homeless. And I was helping that charity to get heating and cooling uh, in their building. And for me, that really was a big turning point for me where I realized I, I actually want to help people as well as helping the environment. And so after that, I... I left San Francisco and I ended up taking that six-month role to work in refugee camps and train refugees to become solar technicians and install solar and um, battery mini-grids. What were some of the highlights from your time doing that work? It, it was the best time of my life, I have to say. I, I absolutely loved it. So highlight to me, I, I got to the end of a project before I was leaving and one of the technicians, he said to me, oh, you've also taught me to speak English and you know that wasn't really an intention Um, I was trying to learn as much Somali language as as I could and so I could communicate to them a bit better I did have a translator most of the time and yeah and he said he said yes now I can speak English and he said I want to live in the forest and I was like right on yes (laughs) don't we all Absolutely. <laughs> and I look out my window, surrounded by trees. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that resonates. Yeah. And that, that was a bit that was special for me to, to know that I'd, you know, I had impacted those people. I'd given them training that they were not otherwise going to get. And so that was, that was special for me to realize that, right, think about that. Yes, I've, I've, I've given something that is really special to these people and, and going to potentially change their lives so yeah that was that was a highlight so many highlights so it was such a special time it was it was so wonderful to be in a different culture it was the first time I'd kind of been out totally removed from my comfort zone I mean going from Australia to America is that's definitely a a cultural shock as well but (laughs) not not quite as extreme so yeah really. how old were you when you embarked on both of those journeys when I left to go to San Francisco as well. Yeah, yeah. I think I was, I think I was 27 when I did that. And, you know, it was like the third time I'd left Australia or something like that. And, yeah. and then, yeah, and then I must have been kind of closer to 30, 20, 29, 30 when I went to Ethiopia. Yeah. And how do you nurture yourself and take care of yourself in such, you know, foreign environments? Yeah, that's a good question. A lot of people were scared for me going going over to Ethiopia and we were in a refugee camp which looked like a jail that had high walls and barbed wire and men with guns. So it, it did look scary. We weren't allowed to just leave the camp and go to the market. You had to have a, either a security person or a driver with you at all times and we had walkie-talkies and that sort of thing. But I've got to say that while I was there, I felt incredibly safe, you know, probably more safe than I felt living in Oakland, (laughs) you know. 
What do you attribute that to? Just the people. I, I never had anybody act towards me in a malice way at all. Everybody seemed happy. I mean, they, they're in a refugee camp, but that camp had been established for quite a while, about seven years. And so people were quite, you know, comfortable there. I, I suppose there weren't, you know, there wasn't new people coming into the camp that had just been you know, taken out of their homes or, you know, ha- had some kind of tumultuous time getting there. Everyone was pretty pretty well set there and they were just living really happy lives because they they really had everything they needed and they probably had a different view on what it is that they needed as well they had family and they had friends and they had food in their bellies and and a roof over their head or a you know a tarp over their head but that's you know that's all they needed and they were were quite happy so was anything from that experience transferable to your studies and the projects that you've worked on here under Alinga? Yeah, absolutely. And also that was the the reason that I decided that I wouldn't go back into a an Arab type firm, that I would start my own company and try to focus on renewable energy and better energy solutions for Indigenous communities here and and in the Pacific. I do a bit of work as well. Yeah, and it, it really has been. So that's kind of what struck me about being out there in Ethiopia in this desert was the similarities to what Indigenous communities in Australia are going through. Similar climate, very hot, very dry, dusty, people in similar economic situations. Yeah, but it, it just really showed me that or brought to my attention really that I could be doing so much for our Indigenous communities back home as well. Yeah, and I found a lot of that has changed my mindset or informed me better so that now I can take that into working with um, Indigenous communities here. So it has been very helpful for the PhD and for my work. I'm curious, do you think that key to creating more impact is smaller operations, so much like yourself, versus that of a a larger organization in tackling these types of issues for, you know, First Nations people or just um, refugee communities? Yeah. Yeah, I guess that the answer to that question is that there's there's definitely space for both and we, we do need both and large organizations do have capabilities that small organizations don't have. But the the benefit, I guess, of being a small organization, at least for me, is you know, being able to offer additional support. That's something that big organizations might not realize that's needed is this kind of personal connection between yourself and the community to establish trust that you, you wouldn't usually have to go through those processes with some of your more mainstream clients. And so that can really take a lot of time and effort from an individual. And it needs the continuity of that individual to keep being involved rather than, well, we are this company, this is our name, and someone from our company is going to keep engaging with you. It should be that same person who's developing that relationship over the long term. So I think that we're, as a small company, we might be in a better position to kind of do that, to to just have that, build that relationship, make that relationship really strong. Yeah, I think it's something that, at EWB, we do really well. Um, you know, people call it soft skills. I call it life skills. I, th- I think as a profession, we want to see it as core skills. And indeed, 
you know, that's sort of in the making, but yeah, that, that, that human to human sort of contact, the two way listening, the deep empathy, the working with, not for, those are the mainstays, like those are the building blocks of how we go about doing, you know, our work. And it sort of sounds like that's, you've identified that that's key through your experience. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So tell us a bit about Alinga, your company. What's, what's the problem that Alinga is sort of setting out to tackle? Mm. I'd say the major problem I identified was the need for feasibility studies in this space and a lack of money to, to undertake those feasibility studies. So working with, trying to work with Indigenous Business Australia and some places like that, they're willing to invest and to put money into communities, but only if you have a really solid idea about what you're planning to put in there and how much it's going to cost. And so there's this gap where we need to figure that out and we do that using a feasibility study and that obviously requires resources and money to get that done. What I've been able to do is do some of that type of work for free by balancing that with some other things on the commercial side. So I also do some work in the commercial space, work for some solar installers and and things like that. And that then is able to balance more of this pro bono work. So I'd say as a company, I'm able to do a high percentage of pro bono or low bono jobs because I've set my company up specifically to do that. And what's the process for understanding what community needs and how you go about responding to that? Yeah, I think it's a mix of what you do for any kind of client plus these are the components that you need to think of specifically for community. So you're still going to go about it the same way technically, looking at what, you know, what do we have to work with in terms of loads and resources and and generation, those sorts of things. So you're still going to do that component as you would usually. But the extra stuff is, so for one of the communities I'm working with, for instance, we've, instead of going in and asking them about their energy problems specifically, we've just gone and asked them about their challenges as a community, as a whole. And then after working through that and identifying all the different challenges, which don't at first seem at all related to energy, Then we can start looking at how those might tie into energy and how we can use better energy strategies to help the community more on a whole rather than just having a very narrow focus because they also don't don't always know what's related to energy and what's not you know but energy is is so key to education and health and all of these other parts of making a community a healthy community and a a well-running community Yeah, I think that sounds really complementary to our strengths-based approach that we utilise when we're working with communities where, as you say, it's not about going in there and, you know, with a deficit mindset going, here's all the things that don't work and here are all the problems. It actually starts at the opposite. Let's make a list of, you know, what we have here. Where are all the positives, you know, who have we got on side? Where are the strengths? What can we utilise? So on and so forth. And we come from there to, yeah, tackle the issue at hand. How, like, how do we tackle this? Can we, is it something that can be so-called solved? What I've noticed through working on these, these grant funded projects that I have in particular, these feasibility studies for communities in the Kimberley. So I've been using that as the foundation for the PhD and using that to 
highlight what the challenges and the barriers are for me, you know, for, firsthand rather than trying to get that from literature. And what I see is that there's about, you know, eight or so different categories of barriers and challenges to solving these problems. You know, things like governance structures and ownership models and business models. So that sort of side of it. Technically, it's less about technical optimization or, you know, calculations, the sizing systems. It's, it's far less about that and more about how do we get the most out of the technology and how do we look after the technology to make sure that, that there's their systems last for as long as possible. Um, yeah, who maintains them? How do we get that education out there so that there's somebody in the community who's able to maintain it? Then we've had, we've had um, communities tell us there's problems with vandalism. So there's, there's all these different pieces. And if you don't solve all of them, you can still have your systems fall over. So I guess the biggest problem is that there's all these little pieces that need to be solved and nobody's really looking at them all. So everyone's just trying to solve their own little piece in isolation and not really working together as, as well as we could be, I think. Yeah. So that's been really interesting working on, on some of these projects and just looking at all of these things, stepping back and going, oh, so how do we, how do we solve all of this together rather than just focusing, getting one right? Because if that one, if that one's right, but some of the others are wrong, the whole puzzle doesn't work. So are you working with partners, be it other like corporates or not-for-profits? Who is working on those bits and pieces that can, you know, make up the puzzle? Yeah. So on the, I get, well, I'm on the technical side. I work with a couple of companies right now on the economic side. So Impact Investment Partners and Indigenous Energy Australia, who are both Indigenous, Indigenous companies. So they're, yeah, they're working on that economic side for me. Then I have interactions with Original Power as well, who are working on that advocacy side, community engagement and policy. Obviously, EWB, you guys are putting a lot of effort into your on-country program as well at the moment. Yeah, but are we all working cohesively together? Not, not as well as we could be, I think, to put together a really united front and work on all of these issues at the same time. How do we do that better? I feel like that's right across. It's not just energy related, but on so many campaigns and issues and activities that are related to First Nations, there seems to be, yeah, people or organizations just sort of working on their own little pockets. So how do we better collaborate, do you think, so that we can create better, bigger, you know, more sustainable impact long-term? I'd love to say I have an actual answer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know because we've, We've also, myself and another company who works in this space, Akistica, you know, we had some, some talks recently with DFAT and we gave them, a, well, recently, a year ago, we gave them a, a call to action at NADOC week and then it started to approach NADOC week again and they set up another meeting to go back through the calls to action that we gave them last year. You know? And so nothing had, had really happened. And so I think that, 
are we just having a lot of meetings like that where we, we come up with strategies, but then nobody's taking the time that is required to focus on those strategies, you know, not meeting often enough to work on those types of things together. Some people have a, they don't, they just don't want to collaborate as much. So I did try to collaborate with some companies who also got grant funding from the same, the same government grant and they're working in Indigenous communities and I saw an opportunity for us to, to share strategies on, you know, stories and they could not understand how they would work with me. They couldn't understand how they would share with me. They, they said, well, we're not sure what information we would be able to give you, you know, and they're thinking about IP, their, their intellectual property, their, you know, their secrets. I don't know. I don't know what kind of secrets that were the engineering secrets that they're applying, but they just, they just were not open to, to talking about it. And, you know, that's a big problem to me. If, if we're all trying to solve this same problem, like we're all trying to solve global problems like climate change. If we can't even work together and share how we might go about that, you know, with the idea to help others improve the methods that they're using, like, well, what are we doing? Like, we're all just trying to say solve, solve the same problem. Why wouldn't we collaborate? Is it a values issue? Like, is it about where where we're coming from? So if you're... You, where you're coming from is, you know, a heart-centred place where you're working for the betterment of all, might that mean that you'd be more open to collaboration? But if you're coming from a place of, oh, we got a contract or, oh, we got a grant and it's business, it's not coming from the same place. And, and so the perhaps the openness or the, yeah, desire to work in such a collaborative manner that that desire just may not exist yeah that that could be exactly right and I think that now nowadays we are so busy and we are so business driven and a lot of our roles are even as engineers now we we have we are given this pressure of having to produce and to always be thinking about the the economics of our projects and, and that sort of thing so yeah I that that probably is a big part of it that people are forgetting why we're doing this at the end of the day, which is definitely just to help people. Uh, and I, I have even seen that with my PhD working with some supervisors, working with some people at the university where, you know, I'm trying to say, well, I just want to do the thesis that is the most useful, that helps the most people. And, you know, and that's not really their main agenda. Their main agenda might be, well, this, <laughs> we want to make this a, applicable so that you get the most citations around the world, you know, <laughs> that's what we care about. And, you know, whatever it is, just notoriety and that's not my driver. And yeah, so it is really hard to, to, to understand those kinds of people when they just come from a totally different place than you do. And yeah, like you said, I'm very, very much heart driven. Yeah. Yeah. Values, tension is you know, I think it's inherent actually in engineering, whether we're talking about working with First Nations people, you know, working in bigger sort of firms, you know, on projects that may not align with who you are and what your core belief system is made up of. 
yeah, obviously you've chosen a work path that is deeply aligned to who you are and your values. Have you ever been in a situation that is the opposite where the work hasn't correlated, you know, with your ethics or your values? Yeah, absolutely. I, I worked last year with a firm on up here in Queensland and so I was working as a contractor to them and working then with their clients. And I had one particular client and I did not agree with what they were doing. And I, on several occasions, told my, my boss there that I wouldn't do that. I, you know, they are actually asking me to do something that, you know, is unethical really, because they're not telling their their customers this or that, and they're trying to get me to produce a document which hides in, you know, information, basically. And I have no problem quickly saying, I won't do that. Yeah, but they, they ended up, I found out recently that that client got rid of that company, that engineering company, fired them, I suppose, because they weren't willing to do the dodgy things that they were wanting. So yeah, it definitely... There's definitely things like that out there all the time. And so for me being very values driven, I don't have an issue with losing, losing the work or losing a client if, if it doesn't align with me, but I can, I imagine that there's a lot of people who would, would struggle in that situation and it might do things they don't, they don't agree with. Yeah. It's very familiar to us at EWB a couple of years ago, we went through a process where it came to our attention that one of our corporate partners was working with Adani. And at that time, we were sort of reviewing our ethical partnerships policy and we really interrogated what it meant to be an ethical engineer and what was the role of ethics in relation to business and creating impact. And, you know, was it a harmonious relate? Like, you know, how do you manage sort of what could potentially be tensions across those three things. And so we decided to create a framework. So we wanted a tool that was impervious to, you know, the person who was using its passions or points of views or opinions that you could simply put an issue through, through this matrix and, and it should pop out whether you might go ahead with a partnership or whether you might need to review it and have a conversation or whether you might need to terminate it. And we did develop that tool. And based on that, we, we had a hard conversation, which actually we felt didn't need to be a hard conversation. We were just so open because we recognized that actually if, if you break up with everybody, then you're a one man show or a one person show. And that's not really building a movement. And for all of these issues, we need to be building the movement. So what's the point on, you know, working on your own, we need to be building relationships and we need to bring people into the conversation and on the journey. But ultimately, if you're not in values alignment, like what can you do? You really suffer from an integrity uh, crisis. And we have 11,000 students who pass through our subject, which is the first year challenge subject at universities across Australia and New Zealand. And they were starting to ask questions because it sort of went into the public eye that we had a relationship with this particular corporate partner. And they were very well read on the Adani issue and they wanted answers from us. And 
we honestly, hand on heart, thought we can't be posturing and and saying that you know we're 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 bringing up the next generation of ethical engineers if we're not going to be ethical ourselves. And so we actually had to walk away from that relationship. So with a new pipeline of engineers coming through, do you have any advice for them? They may be very new in a workplace and they may be put on a job that isn't in alignment with, you know, their social or environmental views. How does a young person in particular hold that tension of, I don't want to get fired. I don't want to be a troublemaker but I kind of need to be a bit of a troublemaker because otherwise I'm in trouble. So yeah. Any words of advice? Uh, yeah. You know, I think that's one of those ones that you have to learn yourself. I think you might have to feel what it feels like, you know, and I'm not saying put yourself in a position like that, but I would, I think that that might be one of those learning opportunities where you get put in a position like that you realize, you feel those feelings of uncomfortable misalignment, you know, and, and you, you go within and you say, you know, why am I feeling like this? Oh, because this is not aligning with my true values. And then you, you don't want to feel like that. So you're going, you're probably going to be forced into at some point saying something about it and changing your situation. And I, yeah, I think that that's probably the only, the only way that that's, that that works is, is to go through it and, and feel that. And then that's what's going to drive you in the future to always stick to your values because you know what it feels like when you don't. Because otherwise it doesn't mean anything if I tell you, if you don't align with your values, you won't feel very good inside. But when you feel it, you will know that's actually not how you want to wake up every day. That's, that's not a good place to be. Mm, trial by fire. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, there's some things that you, I just don't think we're supposed to avoid, you know, and and that's a test, like sticking to your values and your ethics. That's a test. And yeah, and you, you need to pass that yourself to, to move on. So we've got a couple of minutes left. And really, I just want to hand the microphone to you to, uh, you might continue talking about, you know, your PhD or anything else that sort of comes to mind, but really it's just a little shout out moment. Yeah. What, what have you got on the Ruby head? <laughs> what's, what's on my mind? Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, no one ever gets this opportunity to just talk about whatever they want. So that's, that's pretty nice. And of course I'm like, oh, I don't know. I, yeah, I will maybe share some extra details on, on what I'm doing with my PhD. So yeah, I'm doing a PhD with, with Melbourne University at the moment. And my focus is really on how do we create sustainable energy systems for remote Indigenous communities. So right now we've got a lot of bushlight systems that are coming to the end of their lives. And the big question is, you know, what's, what's going to happen? Who takes over ownership of putting in new energy systems into these communities? And the Ruby, sorry, just interrupt for a second. Yeah. Can you just unpack um, what a bushlight system is for our listeners? Yeah, yeah, okay. So bushlight was a federally funded program that installed 
um, solar battery and, and generator mini grids in Indigenous communities between, I think it was 2002 to 2013. So there's about you know, 130 odd systems out there right now, which were installed by Bushlight. And one of the communities that I'm working with under the grant has one of those old Bushlight systems. So it's still working, but now at early in the morning, the community has to go and throw on the generator and they didn't have to do that before. They had battery and solar, which would take them through the day. Um, so they only had to use the, bat the generator if there was like a low solar days, several low solar days in a row. But now they're having to throw on the generator all the time. So that system's just graded naturally like it should over the last, I think that one's about 15 years old. And so now there's communities in this situation where you know, they don't have a plan for the, the federal government defunded that program. So nobody's paying to put systems in there. So that's kind of one of the issues with, with remote power systems for Indigenous communities. Like who, who do we rely on for the funding? If we can't make the business model work within the community that's community funded, then we're always relying on an external party. And so that might be, you know, a grant handout or a federal program. And these things are, are a risk because we don't know where money is going to come from. So I'm, I'm really interested in this idea of how can we make things self-sufficient within community? How can the community afford to, to keep these systems going for the long term? So that's one thing that, that I'm kind of mulling over with my PhD. Wow, that's incredible. How far along are you? When do we get to hear the answer to these issues? I'm not, I'm nine months in. I feel like I've done the workload of about four months. <laughs> so we'll see. I'll, I'll get back to you in about three years. You know, with our listeners, is there any way that they can uh, learn more or contribute or, you know, what role can our engineering audience play in, in any of the things that you've sort of spoken about? which really, I think, just boils down to, you know, energy justice for First Nations people. Yeah. I would say if you are working at all in that space or you've travelled to communities, like, just share your stories. That's what we really need is, is to have stories shared. So, for instance, all of, all of these systems that go in, whether they be energy systems, water systems, whatever it is, into Indigenous communities, especially when it's you know, funded by, by government or by some kind of um, you know, charity funding or philanthropy. Everyone likes to be there on day one, cut the ribbon, take the photos, and that's when we see all the articles being written. But we're not getting the stories a year later and two years later and five years later, and those are the ones that are really important. So are these systems doing what they said they would do? Is the community getting the benefits that were promised to them? And is it all still working years down the track? That's, those are the kinds of stories that we should be trying to share. And people who live in these Indigenous communities, they right now have a really limited voice. And so it's all of our job to help amplify that voice through our networks. Beautiful. Well... Thank you so much for your time. It's always good to chat with you and fantastic to have you on our podcast. Yeah, no worries. This is fun. Thank you. 
The creation of this podcast would not have been possible without the passion and expertise of our creative team, Julian Rausch, Isabella Fredhaim and Melanie Audrey. To learn more about this podcast, follow The Actioneers on Instagram. And for this episode's transcript and show notes, please visit our website at ewb.org.au forward slash podcast. And as always, please like, subscribe and leave us a review.